Section 21 of The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales by Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. John Barrington Cowles, Part 2. I got an answer from Lester, where the Colonel resided, within two days. I have it before me as I write and copy it verbatim. Dear Bob, it said, I remember the man well. I was with him at Calcutta and afterwards at Hyderabad. He was a curious, solitary sort of mortal, but a gallant soldier, for he distinguished himself at Soberon and was wounded, if I remember right. He was not popular in his corps. They said he was a pitiless, cold-blooded fellow with no geniality in him. There was a rumor, too, that he was a devil-worshipper or something of that sort, and also that he had the evil eye, which, of course, was all nonsense. He had some strange theories, I remember, about the power of the human will and the effects of mind upon matter. How are you getting on with your medical studies? Never forget, my boy, that your father's son has every claim upon me, and that if I can serve you in any way, I am always at your command. Ever affectionately yours, Edward Joyce. P.S. By the way, Northcutt did not fall in action. He was killed after peace was declared in a crazy attempt to get some of the eternal fire from the sun-worshipper's temple. There was considerable mystery about his death. I read this epistle over several times, at first with a feeling of satisfaction, and then with one of disappointment. I had come on some curious information, and yet hardly what I wanted. He was an eccentric man, a devil-worshipper, and rumored to have the power of the evil eye. I could believe the young lady's eyes, when endowed with that cold, gray shimmer, which I had noticed in them once or twice, to be capable of any evil which human eye ever wrought. But still the superstition was an effete one. Was there not more meaning in that sentence which followed? He had theories of the power of the human will, and of the effect of mind upon matter. I remember having once read, in a quaint treatise, which I had imagined to be mere charlatanism at the time, of the power of certain human minds, and of effects produced by them at a distance. Was Miss Northcutt endowed with some exceptional power of the sort? The idea grew upon me, and very shortly I had evidence which convinced me of the truth of the supposition. It happened that at the very time when my mind was dwelling upon this subject, I saw a notice in the paper that our town was to be visited by Dr. Messenger, the well-known medium and mesmerist. Messenger was a man whose performance, such as it was, had been again and again pronounced to be genuine by competent judges. He was far above trickery and had the reputation of being the soundest living authority upon the strange pseudosciences of animal magnetism and electrobiology. Determined, therefore, to see what the human will could do, even against all the disadvantages of glaring footlights and a public platform, I took a ticket for the first night of the performance, and went with several student friends. We had secured one of the side boxes, and did not arrive until after the performance had begun. I had hardly taken my seat before I recognized Barrington Cowles, 
with his fiancée and old Mrs. Merton sitting in the third or fourth row of the stalls. They caught sight of me at almost the same moment, and we bowed to each other. The first portion of the lecture was somewhat commonplace, the lecturer giving tricks of pure legerdemain, with one or two manifestations of mesmerism, performed upon a subject whom he had brought with him. He gave us an exhibition of clairvoyance, too, by throwing his subject into a trance and then demanding particulars as to the movements of absent friends and the whereabouts of hidden objects, all of which appeared to be answered satisfactorily. I had seen all this before, however. What I wanted to see now was the effect of the lecturer's will when exerted upon some independent member of the audience. He came round to that as the concluding exhibition in his performance. I have shown you, he said, that a mesmerized subject is entirely dominated by the will of the mesmerizer. He loses all power of volition, and his very thoughts are such as suggested to him by the mastermind. The same end may be attained without any preliminary process. A strong will can, simply by virtue of its strength, take possession of a weaker one, even at a distance, and can regulate the impulses and the actions of the owner of it. If there was one man in the world who had a very much more highly developed will than any of the rest of the human family, there's no reason why he should not be able to rule over them all, and to reduce his fellow creatures to conditions of automatons. Happily, there is such a dead level of mental power, or rather mental weakness, among us, that such a catastrophe is not likely to occur. But still within our small compass, there are variations which produce surprising effects. I shall now single out one of the audience and endeavor, by the mere power of will, to compel him to come upon the platform and do or say what I wish. Let me assure you that there is no collusion, and that the subject whom I may select is at perfect liberty to resent to the utmost any impulse which I may communicate to him. With these words, the lecturer came to the front of the platform and glanced over the first few rows of the stalls. No doubt, Cal's dark skin and bright eyes marked him out as a man of a highly nervous temperament, for the mesmerist picked him out in a moment and fixed his eyes upon him. I saw my friend give a start of surprise and then settle down in his chair, as if to express his determination not to yield to the influence of the operator. Messenger was not a man whose head denoted any great brain power, but his gaze was singularly intense and penetrating. Under the influence of it, Cal's made one or two spasmodic motions of his hands, as if to grasp the sides of his seat, and then half rose, but only to sink down again, though with an evident effort. I was watching the scene with intense interest when I happened to catch a glimpse of Miss Norcutt's face. She was sitting with her eyes fixed intently upon the mesmerist, and with such an expression of concentrated power upon her features as I have never seen on any other human countenance. Her jaw was firmly set, her lips compressed, and her face as hard as if it were a beautiful sculptor cut out of the whitest marble. 
Her eyebrows were drawn down, however, and from beneath them her gray eyes seemed to sparkle and gleam with a cold light. I looked at Cowles again, expecting every moment to see him rise and obey the mesmerist's wishes, when there came from the platform a short gasping cry as of a man utterly worn out and prostrated by a prolonged struggle. Messenger was leaning against the table, his hand to his forehead, and the perspiration pouring down his face. I won't go on, he cried, addressing the audience. There is a stronger will than mine acting against me. You must excuse me for tonight. The man was evidently ill and utterly unable to proceed. So the curtain was lowered and the audience dispersed with many comments upon the lecturer's sudden indisposition. I waited outside the hall until my friend and the ladies came out. Cowles was laughing over his recent experience. He didn't succeed with me, Bob, he cried triumphantly, as he shook my hand. I think he caught a tartar that time. Yes, said Miss Northcutt, I think that Jack ought to be very proud of his strength of mind. Don't you, Mr. Armitage? It took me all my time, though, my friend said seriously. You can't conceive what a strange feeling I had once or twice. All the strength seemed to have gone out of me, especially just before he collapsed himself. I walked round with Cowles in order to see the ladies home. He walked in front with Miss Merton, and I found myself behind with the young lady. For a minute or so, I walked beside her without making any remark, and then I suddenly blurted out, in a manner which must have seemed somewhat brusque to her, You did that, Miss Northcutt. Did what? she asked sharply. Why, mesmerize the mesmerizer. I suppose that is the best way of describing the transaction. What a strange idea, she said, laughing. You give me credit for a strong will, then. Yes, I said, for a dangerously strong one. Why dangerous, she asked, in a tone of surprise. I think I answered that any will which can exercise such power is dangerous, for there's always a chance of it being turned to bad uses. You would make me out a very dreadful individual, Mr. Armitage, she said, and then looking up suddenly in my face. You have never liked me. You are suspicious of me and distrust me, though I have never given you cause. The accusation was so sudden and so true that I was unable to find any reply to it. She paused for a moment and then said in a voice which was hard and cold, Don't let your prejudice lead you to interfere with me, however, or say anything to your friend, Mr. Cowles, which might lead to a difference between us. You would find that to be very bad policy. There was something in the way she spoke which gave an indescribable air of a threat to these few words. I have no power, I said, to interfere with your plans for the future. I cannot help, however, from what I have seen and heard, having fears for my friend. Fears, she repeated scornfully. Pray, what have you seen and heard? Something from Mr. Reeves, perhaps. I believe he is another of your friends. He never mentioned your name to me, I answered truthfully enough. You will be sorry to hear that he is dying. As I said it, we passed by a lighted window, and I glanced down to see what effect my words had upon her. She was laughing. There was no doubt of it. She was laughing quietly to herself. 
I could see merriment in every feature of her face. I feared and mistrusted the woman from that moment more than ever. We said little more that night. When we parted, she gave me a quick warning glance, as if to remind me of what she had said about the danger of interference. Her cautions would have made little difference to me could I have seen my way to benefiting Barrington Cowles by anything which I might say. But what could I say? I might say that her former suitors had been unfortunate. I might say that I believed her to be a cruel-hearted woman. I might say that I considered her to possess wonderful and almost preternatural powers. What impression would any of these accusations make upon an ardent lover? A man with my friend's enthusiastic temperament. I felt that it would be useless to advance them, so I was silent. And now I come to the beginning of the end. Here to two, much has been surmised in inference and hearsay. It is my painful task to relate now, as dispassionately and as accurately as I can, what actually occurred under my own notice, and to reduce to writing the events which preceded the death of my friend. Towards the end of the winter, Cowles remarked to me that he intended to marry Miss Northcutt as soon as possible, probably sometime in the spring. He was, as I have already remarked, fairly well off, and the young lady had some money of her own, so there was no pecuniary reason for a long engagement. We are going to take a little house out at Corstorphine, he said, and we hope to see your face at our table, Bob, as often as you can possibly come. I thanked him and tried to shake off my apprehensions and persuade myself that all would yet be well. It was about three weeks before the time fixed for the marriage that Cowles remarked to me one evening that he feared he would be late that night. I have had a note from Kate, he said, asking me to call about eleven o'clock tonight, which seems rather a late hour, but perhaps she wants to talk over something quietly after old Mrs. Merton retires. It was not until after my friend's departure that I suddenly recollected the mysterious interview which I had been told of as preceding the suicide of young Prescott. Then I thought of the ravings of poor Reeves, rendered more tragic by the fact that I had heard that very day of his death. What was the meaning of it all? Had this woman some baleful secret to disclose, which must be known before her marriage? Was it some reason which forbade her to marry? Or was it some reason which forbade others to marry her? I felt so uneasy that I would have followed Cowles, even at the risk of offending him, and endeavored to dissuade him from keeping his appointment. But a glance at the clock showed me that I was too late. I was determined to wait up for his return, so I piled some coals upon the fire and took down a novel from the shelf. My thoughts proved more interesting than the book, however, and I threw it on one side. An indefinable feeling of anxiety and depression weighed upon me. Twelve o'clock came, and then half-past, without any sign of my friend. It was nearly one when I heard a step in the street outside, and then a knocking at the door. I was surprised, as I knew that my friend always carried a key. However, I hurried down and undid the latch. As the door flew open, 
I knew in a moment that my worst apprehensions had been fulfilled. Barrington Cowles was leaning against the railings outside, with his face sunk upon his breast and his whole attitude expressive of the most intense despondency. As he passed in, he gave a stagger, and would have fallen had I not thrown my left arm around him. Supporting him with this, and holding the lamp in my other hand, I led him slowly upstairs into our sitting-room. He sank down upon the sofa without a word. Now that I could get a good view of him, I was horrified to see the change which had come over him. His face was deadly pale, and his very lips were bloodless. His cheeks and forehead were clammy, his eyes glazed, and his whole expression altered. He looked like a man who had gone through some terrible ordeal, and was thoroughly unnerved. "'My dear fellow, what is the matter?' I asked, breaking the silence. "'Nothing amiss, I trust. Are you unwell?' "'Brandy,' he gasped. "'Give me some brandy.' I took out the decanter and was about to help him, when he snatched it from me with a trembling hand and poured out nearly half a tumbler of the spirit. He was usually a most abstemious man, but he took this off at a gulp without adding any water to it. It seemed to do him good, for the color began to come back to his face, and he leaned upon his elbow. "'My engagement is off, Bob,' he said, trying to speak calmly, but with a tremor in his voice, which he could not conceal. "'It is all over.' "'Cheer up,' I answered, trying to encourage him. "'Don't get down on your luck. How was it? What was it all about?' "'About,' he groaned, covering his face with his hands. "'If I did tell you, Bob, you would not believe it. It is too dreadful, too horrible, unutterably awful and incredible.' "'Oh, Kate, Kate,' and he rocked himself to and fro in his grief. "'I pictured you an angel, and I find you a—' A what, I asked, for he had paused. He looked at me with a vacant stare, and then suddenly burst out, waving his arms. A fiend, he cried, a ghoul from the pit, a vampire soul behind a lovely face. Now, God forgive me, he went on in a lower tone, turning his face to the wall. I have said more than I should. I've loved her too much to speak of her as she is. I love her too much now. He lay still for some time, and I had hoped that the brandy had had the effect of sending him to sleep when he suddenly turned his face towards me. "'Did you ever read of werewolves?' he asked. I answered that I had. "'There is a story,' he said thoughtfully, in one of Marriott's books, about a beautiful woman who took the form of a wolf at night and devoured her own children. I wonder what put that idea into Marriott's head.' He pondered for some minutes, and then he cried out for some more brandy. There was a small bottle of laudanum upon the table, and I managed, by insisting upon helping him myself, to mix about a half a dram with the spirits. He drank it off and sank his head once more upon the pillow. Anything better than that, he groaned. Death is better than that. Crime and cruelty, cruelty and crime. Anything is better than that. And so on with the monotonous refrain, until at last the words became indistinct, his eyelids closed over his weary eyes, and he sank into a profound slumber. I carried him into his bedroom without arousing him, and making a couch for myself out of the chairs, 
I remained by his side all night. In the morning, Barrington Cowles was in a high fever. For weeks he lingered between life and death. The highest medical skill in Edinburgh was called in, and his vigorous constitution slowly got the better of his disease. I nursed him during this anxious time, but through all his wild delirium and ravings, he never let a word escape him which explained the mystery connected with Miss Northcott. Sometimes he spoke of her in the tenderest words and most loving voice. At others he screamed out that she was a fiend and stretched out his arm as if to keep her off. Several times he cried that he would not sell his soul for a beautiful face, and then he would moan in a most piteous voice, But I love her. I love her for all that. I shall never cease to love her. When he came to himself, he was an altered man. His severe illness had emaciated him greatly, but his dark eyes had lost none of their brightness. They shone out with startling brilliancy from under his dark, overhanging brows. His manner was eccentric and variable, sometimes irritable, sometimes recklessly mirthful, but never natural. He would glance about him in a strange, suspicious manner, like one who feared something, and yet hardly knew what it was he dreaded. He never mentioned Miss Norcutt's name, never until that fatal evening, of which I have now to speak. In an endeavor to break the current of his thoughts by frequent change of scene, I traveled with him through the highlands of Scotland and afterwards down the east coast. In one of these peregrinations of ours, we visit the Isle of May, an island near the mouth of the Firth of Forth, which, except in the tourist season, is singularly barren and desolate. Beyond the keeper of the lighthouse, there are only one or two families of poor fisher folk who sustain a precarious existence by their nets and by the capture of cormorants and solan geese. This grim spot seemed to have such a fascination for cowls that we engaged a room in one of the fishermen's huts with the intention of passing a week or two there. I found it very dull, but the loneliness appeared to be a relief to my friend's mind. He lost the look of apprehension which had become habitual to him and became something like his old self. He would wander round the island all day, looking down from the summit of the great cliffs which gird it round, and watching the long green waves as they came booming in and burst in a shower of spray over the rocks beneath. One night, I think it was our third or fourth on the island, Barrington Cowles and I went outside the cottage before retiring to rest, to enjoy a little fresh air, for our room was small and the rough lamp caused an unpleasant odor. How well I remember every little circumstance in connection with that night. It promised to be temptuous, for the clouds were piling up in the northwest, and the dark rack was drifting across the face of the moon, throwing alternate belts of light and shade upon the rugged surface of the island and the restless sea beyond. We were standing talking close by the door of the cottage, and I was thinking to myself that my friend was more cheerful than ever he had been since his illness, when he gave a sudden sharp cry, and looking round at him, I saw, by the light of the moon, an expression 
of unutterable horror come over his features. His eyes became fixed and staring, as if riveted upon some approaching object, and he extended his long, thin forefinger, which quivered as he pointed. Look there, he cried. It is she, it is she. You can see her coming down the side of the bray. He gripped me convulsively by the wrist as he spoke. There she is, coming toward us. Who, I cried, straining my eyes into the darkness. She, Kate, Kate Northcup, he screamed. She has come for me. Hold me fast, old friend. Don't let me go. Hold up, old man, I said, clapping him on the shoulder. Pull yourself together. You are dreaming. There is nothing to fear. She is gone, he cried, with a gasp of relief. No, by heaven. There she is again, nearer, coming nearer. She told me she would come for me, and she keeps her word. Come into the house, I said. His hand, as I grasped it, was as cold as ice. Ah, I knew it, he shouted. There she is, waving her arms. She is beckoning to me. It is the signal. I must go. I'm coming, Kate. I'm coming. I threw my arms around him, but he burst from me with superhuman strength and dashed into the darkness of the night. I followed him, calling to him to stop, but he ran the more swiftly. When the moon shone out between the clouds, I could catch a glimpse of his dark figure running rapidly in a straight line, as if to reach some definite goal. It may have been imagination, but it seemed to me that in the flickering light I could distinguish a vague something in front of him, a shimmering form which eluded his grasp and led him onwards. I saw his outlines stand out against the sky behind him as he surmounted the brow of a little hill. Then he disappeared, and that was the last ever seen by mortal eye of Barrington Cowles. The fisherman and I walked round the island all that night with lanterns and examined every nook and corner without seeing any trace of my poor lost friend. The direction in which he had been running terminated in a rugged line of jagged cliffs overhanging the sea. At one place here the edge was somewhat crumbled, and there appeared marks upon the turf which might have been left by human feet. We lay upon our faces at this spot and peered with our lanterns over the edge, looking down on the boiling surge two hundred feet below. As we lay there, suddenly, above the beating of the waves and the howling of the wind, there rose a strange, wild screech from the abyss below. The fishermen, a naturally superstitious race, averred that it was the sound of a woman's laughter, and I could hardly persuade them to continue the search. For my own part, I think it may have been the cry of some sea-fowl, startled from its nest by the flash of the lantern. However that may be, I never wish to hear such a sound again. And now I have come to the end of the painful duty which I have undertaken. I have told as plainly and as accurately as I could the story of the death of John Barrington Cowles and the train of events which preceded it. I am aware that to others the sad episode seemed commonplace enough. Here is the prosaic account which appeared in The Scotsman a couple of days afterwards. Sad occurrence on the Isle of May. The Isle of May has been the scene of a sad disaster. Mr. John Barrington Cowles, a gentleman 
well known in university circles as a most distinguished student and the present holder of the Neil Arnott Prize for Physics, has been recruiting his health in this quiet retreat. The night before last, he suddenly left his friend, Mr. Robert Armitage, and he has not since been heard of. It is almost certain that he has met his death by falling over the cliffs which surround the island. Mr. Cowell's health had been failing for some time, partly from overstudy and partly from worry connected with family affairs. By his death, the university has lost one of her most promising alumni. I have nothing more to add to my statement. I have unburdened my mind of all that I know. I can well conceive that many, after weighing all that I have said, will see no ground for an accusation against Miss Northcutt. They will say that, because a man of a naturally excitable disposition says and does wild things, and eventually commits self-murder after a sudden and heavy disappointment, there is no reason why vague charges should be advanced against a young lady. To this I answer that they are welcome to their opinion. For my own part, I ascribe the death of William Prescott, of Archibald Reeves, and of John Barrington Coles to this woman, with as much confidence as if I had seen her drive a dagger into their hearts. You ask me, no doubt, what my own theory is, which will explain all these strange facts. I have none, or at best, a dim vague one. That Miss Northcutt possessed extraordinary powers over the minds, and through the minds over the bodies of others. I am convinced as well that her instincts were to use this power for base and cruel purposes. That some even more fiendish and terrible phase of her character lay behind this, some horrible trait which it was necessary for her to reveal before marriage, is to be inferred from the experience of her three lovers, while the dreadful nature of the mystery thus revealed can only be surmised from the fact that the very mention of it drove from her those who loved her so passionately. Their subsequent fate was, in my opinion, the result of her vindictive remembrance of their desertion of her, and that they were forewarned of it at the time was shown by the words of both Reeves and Cowles. Above this I can say nothing. I lay the facts soberly before the public as they came under my notice. I have never seen Miss Northcutt since, nor do I wish to do so. If by the words I have written I can save any one human being from the snare of those bright eyes and that beautiful face, then I can lay down my pen with the assurance that my poor friend has not died altogether in vain. End of section 21